Well, welcome everybody to the next episode of What Would the Smart Party Do, episode four. And this week we're gonna talk about settings. Now I realize that some people uh, don't really go in for settings, actually. That seems to be an old school 90s thing. A lot of the new story games have uh, sessions where you basically create the setting amongst yourselves and the players then have a lot of input. But I think there's a lot of value to be found. If nothing else, even if you just have a bunch of people together who create their own setting, they're pretty much doing it there on spec. Whereas a lot of these older games, or the newer settings, have had several writers, editors, lots of proofreading, there's lots of backwards and forwards. So the springboard of ideas and the stuff in them has been created over a long period of time. And as cool as individual sessions can be at creating a setting, I think some of the old published ones just have that benefit of time and multiple people and a bit of consideration about it. What do you think to that, Baz? Yeah, I mean, I, I love me a setting. Um, my tastes have changed massively over the years, um, and I think I think the '90s was maybe the golden age of settings, or maybe it was it was the age when there was a million different settings anyway, and meta plot and loads of other stuff that I'm sure we'll cover later. And my tastes have changed. I mean, I've got an awful lot of settings. Um, I've read a smaller subset of the ones that I've got, and I've played an even smaller subset of that. Um, and as time has gone on, that has shrunk back a bit. And I am slightly more a fan these days of the invent your own. Um, and even if I'm not that, even if I'm playing in a setting, I'm much more likely these days due to age and lack of time and all that kind of stuff to be way more loosey-goosey with the canon. Because there was definitely a time where if the books told me that something was somewhere and had this sort of person in it then that's where they were and I, and I was quite reluctant to to not play a setting um, setting as written uh, for the same way as I'm reluctant to play games that, that aren't rules as written really uh, you know you pay money for stuff why would you not use it so yeah tastes have changed but I still love a setting and I love it whether it's written by the table or written by an author but the ones that are written by really good writers, I think are, you know, they're, they're a really important part of the hobby. Um, and they weren't necessarily right at the start, but there was a big middle bit of the hobby in its whole history where if it didn't have a setting, it probably didn't have a game. Um, I mean, I remember way, way back when if you bought a rule set, you just bought a rule set. Having a setting was either a separate book or it was absolutely up to you. And that's how D&D started, don't forget. So maybe it's come full circle with that kind of thing, um, but definitely a big chunk of a big chunk of stuff that I love on my library is more setting than rules. And do you think those games had to grow into it? There's um, there's a couple of books I can think of where you get kind of one book and that's it. But far more often you had the kind of settings that were released over a period of time and some did that in a quite smooth way so they gave you enough to be getting on with and then moved on to another part of the world or whatever it might be and others seem to have a real uh, effort to, to kind of hook people in so they, they tell you some stuff and then even speaking to the gem in the gem chapter would say and we'll tell you all about that organization later or we'll reveal who that buddy is but that's for another book and that sort mm. of thing yeah which you know all very well and good in that kind of like 1930s cliffhanger episodic movie sort of thing but in terms of you as a German having to present a game and not wanting to spoil what comes later because the new books might contradict it did kind of leave you in a bit of a bind didn't it as to what to do with your sort of half finished game that they've given you that they're going to then drip feed you over a period of months 
Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've started campaigns in worlds with setting books where I've deliberately not gone anywhere near a city that I knew had a source book coming out next year, which is <laughs> slightly bonkers, perhaps. But it didn't make any difference to the game. We still had a, a rare old time. Um, but you know that that was back when publishers were going to publish more than half a dozen books for a game line that's another thing that seems to have in some ways gone the way of the dodo you don't see so much of that extended release schedule anymore um but yeah i've done that i mean i'll put my cards on the table now and say that actually i was a bit of a fan of the meta plot i actually really quite liked it um poster child for that sort of stuff would be the deadlands books which eventually became three games um and there is stuff in the original core set that is strictly labelled off as secret um, and to be continued. And it absolutely was continued over the course of like 30, 40 books per game. I mean, it must have topped out at 100 books by the time Pinnacle was finished with that first edition. And I loved all of that. Um, and I loved it because, let's be honest, any excuse to buy a gaming book, who, who doesn't want that? It almost doesn't matter if it doesn't always get played but it just seeps into your consciousness because I, I do believe that you can enjoy role-playing games with nobody else around the table it's absolutely fine yeah of course you want to get as much game in as you can but you know what one of the things that draw me, draws me to a game or, or, or did maybe not so much these days is a nice big chunky catalogue that I can go and get right into if I enjoy it and so those sort of metaplot books of the 90s if you could get in early um, they were really good and you know White Wolf Games I think would be another example where you don't get a huge amount in the core book I mean arguably I think the core books are probably the strongest one in all the original White Wolf Games and 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 you maybe I've always felt a bit silly for buying anything more than the core book because it it became like a collectible novel rather than something you could really engage with at any decent level um, and it was very very easy to get left behind but there was a stack of meta plot in those and and god knows they were extremely popular by people who may never have actually played the damn things yeah quite true um like, yeah i've sort of got mixed feelings about it because i think some of the games delivered on what they promised like you said the deadlines line did continue things on and even the reboot quite recently hmm. they've, fin they've kind of carried on from where the old line finished off and stuff like that so that's quite good the, the problem always has been that some people promise you things and then you never get them or you do get your your promised next section and then just think well that's a bit weak I, I have much better ideas in my head and of course there's nothing to stop you from running your own game at that point but it, it's that sort of weird thing we've got like you say where you kind of want to run it as it's written or to the canon or at least to, a, to some degree in line with what's happening in everybody else's version of that game that's been run around the world hmm. yeah. it does feel odd to try and break away from it and go well no I'm going to I've got better ideas because as soon as you do that then do you really need to start buying any more books at that point then you sort of don't necessarily follow the line do you because you've got your own ideas and you can run with them hmm. maybe just buy them for, for the read and to see if you can pick any bits out I don't know yeah no I, I, I've absolutely gone that way I think it probably took me way too much time and certainly way too much money to learn the lesson that you you definitely don't need all of those setting books you absolutely don't need him, but it was never about need. It was always about want. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I simply do not have the time, and arguably I never did have the time, to try and assimilate a 300-plus page hardback book which is written in a style which is not massively conducive to learning the game and what you're going to do in it 
it, it, they some of these settings that we'll no doubt mention were they were pretty dry reads if you start at the front and work your way forwards um and now i'm i've got far more ability i think to discriminate between something that's going to get read and or played than just stored it doesn't always work i've bought massive setting books recently and guess what not got much past the introduction which i really really could have done in the game store and and put it back on the shelf there instead of parting with 30 to 40 quid and putting it on my game shelf um stupid baz never learns um but i don't do it nearly so much these days and you know if you look at a, a relatively recent game like apocalypse world it's absolutely chocker with setting but it doesn't have a setting chapter let alone a, a separate book um and it does encourage you to roll your own but you know whatever you roll out of that game will come dripping with the attitude that just pervades that book and that's that is 300 pages but it doesn't feel like it when you're going through it um so that more modern approach i really appreciate but but yeah things have changed but at the end of the day i still like a setting and and when people talk about their favorite settings on the internet and and, you know i'm sure guys you'll start talking about some stuff in a second it will it will get my juices going and i'm probably going to want to go straight to drive through and order it immediately because when people talk with passion about a setting that you know you can get a piece of i think that's uh that's very tempting indeed and it has a certain pull to it yeah absolutely i think the only problem can be is if there's too much or people are too fervent I think we've mentioned on the forums recently Glorantha now there's, there's so much out there for that that is bewildering it's become almost worse than actual real history the amount of text and documents and so forth mm-hmm. and a lot of it's really really dry but um, I've still managed to encourage some people to start up a little online game that I'm going to have a go at due to purely mentioning some of the good bits and I think that's right if you can pick out the sexy bits or there's a good way into a setting then that will get people excited and wanting to learn more. What you really want, I think, is um, those certain books to have more of that good stuff and less of the dry, boring history of what happened 500 years ago. Yeah, so what what have you got in your do's and don'ts of settings then? I think we're touching on it now, but let, let's get into this then. So, you know, what's the stuff that you that really draws you to a setting and what's the stuff that's a big turn-off? Well, you want a good hook, don't you? You want someone to be able to give you the elevator pitch in a few seconds and start talking about something and think, yeah, that's cool, I want a game there. That's your first thing. Uh, another thing is to try and make it in the moment about what you're going to do as well. You kind of set up the, the current world. But something like uh, Legend of the Burning Sands, for example, is a book that's basically Legend of the Five Rings, which is a good setting, which I can talk about more in a bit. Um, but say kind of Arabian Nights but as you read the setting book or the setting part of the book it's all about stuff that happened hundreds of years ago and all that sounds really cool but you're not going to play it then you're playing after all that's already happened and that's so it's no good just having cool stuff it's going to be cool stuff that your players are then going to be doing or interacting with or making their own versions of but equally uh, something like Iron Kingdoms for example has got a fantastic setting if you read their war games manuals but somehow they've made a really boring role-playing game out of it. It's just full of dry history from hundreds of years ago or things that happen that you can't affect. And so your, your first do or do not is make it about stuff that's happening now that we can do things with. Yeah. Don't make it solely about what has happened and not really about what's going to happen. Yeah, all that back history is nice, but it's no more than that. And and also what is it with games designers that seem to think they will need a, a four page timeline in the front of their setting 
that goes back in tens of thousands of years and you've only got to look at earth's history if you went back a thousand years you'd have more than a four-page timeline of incredible innovations and geopolitical stuff um they they always go back to like you know eons in the past and as you say it's no more than backstory and it's backstory that won't even come out as backstory unless your players all go and buy the setting book and devour it i I think it's it's a total waste of paper and there are some otherwise excellent settings like Exalted, uh, which I think are marred by that kind of extreme history and, and, and other games where that kind of stuff just sounds so much more exciting, the stuff that was happening in the prehistory when everything was all big and magical and demigods roamed the earth and there was huge Armageddons. And the, the current setting is always, it's now a time of uneasy peace and everybody sort of looks at each other sideways and and really nobody wants to spark the next war well it's like well that sounds like the dullest bit you've told me so far and this is what you're giving me to play in why can't i go back to when gods walk the earth and the titans were erupting out of the seas that's what sounds super cool so yes (laughs) we agree on that um, and then you've kind of got an awkward one for me. I think um, there's a setting, Delta Green, which is uh, modern day Cthulhu, or more sort of X Files 90s Cthulhu, I guess, which I really, really love. And everyone I speak to about it absolutely loves the setting. Uh, but they're all GMs. Hmm. So the, the, the problem you've got there, or the, the sort of weird worry you've got, is that to read it, it's actually a fantastic read. It's great. People devour that book. However, you're supposed to translate that information to your players but because it's again about secrets and all that kind of stuff things that's happening with the mythos or shady government organisations you can't just dump it all out there otherwise you lose all the, all the mystery and excitement of the game so you're in a weird dichotomy there where you kind of want to share this information it's good to do it but you really have to sort of feed it out really slowly but then your players and this has happened to me several times get a bit bored because you've frothed about this setting and they're just solving some mysteries but don't really see a lot of the big picture that goes on and it probably takes too long for that stuff to come out yeah it always does it, I mean game role playing games are always slower than you think always um, and, and I think you have to really up the pace of what you intend to deliver and it will still come out at half the speed you want it to and it will be understood at half that speed as well so anything with with secrets or or what people like to call slow burn backstories it's almost no burn if you don't get to the resolutions you know um and and i totally get that people want to plot out or plan out a campaign from level one to 20 in D &D in in really basic terms but you've got to have that realization as well that you're likely not going to get beyond level three because real life will stop you so front load the cool stuff and, and if, he, if he gets bored and you run out of cool stuff pick up another game and start some more cool stuff again um, you know settings need to be great in the book when you're reading it as a GM they absolutely need to excite you because otherwise you won't pitch it and it has to do a really good job of getting you excited and giving you the tools for you to verbally give that to a group of people around your table so that they don't read the book but you're kind of reading it to them in sections and through play so that at the end of your campaign they feel like they've had their money's worth out of that setting book as well without without parting with any money because players don't do that they leave that to me <laughs> um, 
but but that's what it needs to be you know you need to get that 300 page book or whatever it is out onto the table otherwise it isn't real and, and i think some settings don't help you with that by their very nature in the in the case of some of the cthulhu or mystery based stuff for sure and then i guess my example of that would be um, a, another you know justifiably lauded setting for loads of different reasons would be the blue planet setting which is for those who don't know uh, and Gaz will correct me when i get this wrong it's set on the water world of poseidon uh, in the relatively near far future if there could be such a thing as a near far future but it's sci-fi and it's a water world on the other end of a wormhole and it's got natives but it's also got colonists and it's incredibly detailed to a very scientific degree and, and the world is absolutely alive and there are many 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 settings books on it for even greater le- levels of detail and it's a wonderful thing it's a huge piece of creation but it's got almost it's got so many corners to it or ways to look at it or plots that could be contained within the world that i don't know even if someone started playing it when it was first released and they played weekly and they're still going now i don't think they would have got through all of the various campaigns that they could do on it so it's almost intimidatingly detailed that you can't just get a, a, a nice buzzy campaign out of it and that's that's all you can want out of any setting isn't it just something that you can play yeah absolutely i think there's um well I'll let you talk about earth on a minute because that's one of our favorites mm. one you're particularly keen on um that, that was a weird one when it came out that you had this post-apocalyptic world all these people come out from these cares uh, as they were called underground dungeons they basically been kept in for a few hundred years an actual world that's changed. Mountains have been eaten and lakes have changed and rivers have changed, courses and holy forests have sprung up or been devoured. And the whole world looks nothing like it did from the books 500 years ago kind of thing. So you kind of started off that game making some stuff up yourself because there wasn't anything. And if there was, it's all changed now. Uh, and then things started coming out. And I think one of the really good books for that was Serpent River, which is a big sort of sea-shaped river that covers all of Barca, your main area that you live in. And that just had tons and tons of gameable ideas in it. And every every paragraph, from memory anyway, I thought of something else I could do with the players or show to them or explain to them or, you know, give them some snippet of what the world's like. Uh, and I think having good gameable ideas in there is what makes a setting really good if it is a good one. Mm. It's all very well having your own private fun reading the book, but like you say, you want stuff that you can actually do in the game or, or show and tell. So what do you think about Earth Dawn, Baz? Well, strap yourselves in, because this could be a long chat. <laughs> I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, Earththorn is the single finest role-playing game ever written. And, and that's, let's get that straight out there, and that's beyond any doubt at all. Email me if you think any differently. I will delete your email on site, because I am correct. Now, what's great about Earththorn? Well, many, many, many things. But what I'll do is, just to bring it back into the whole setting point, is, is I'll say this. And this this ties back into our systems chat from a couple of podcasts ago as well. The thing that was so great about Earthdawn is it's got its core activity front and centre in the game. You know what it is you're going to be doing in the game. The players absolutely know how to build their characters and what their characters are doing together and what their characters as a group are going to go out into the world and do. And the setting is explicitly designed for you to undertake that core activity which is initially exploring a new world 
hence the term earth dawn so it's like right there on the cover it's the dawn of a new earth a new world for you to step out of your your bunker that you and your family for generations have been living underground and you're pushing open the door and seeing what's out there and seeing if it's backed up by the legends so just because it's so easy to get started because from there it can branch off into a million different things and and there was plenty of ideas loads of ideas of what to do but it's such a simple starting point and so evocative as well and and I love how it subverts the basic D&D genre because you start in a dungeon and leave <laughs> and it is full of little things like that and it was often said at the time I think the game came out in the early 90s 92 93 something like that when when Dungeons and Dragons was going through a fairly rough patch TSR was on its ass and it had been eaten by its own settings um, and TSR did some great settings in second edition but way too many of them and it was really encumbered by a, a fairly terrible rule set by that point earth dawn was fresh and people called it D done right and it absolutely was for me and it was a total breath of fresh air i didn't like it the first time i looked at it because i thought it was derivative and then i started reading it and i even liked the opening chapter of fiction which puts you right into the world and, and i won't bore anybody on this podcast about the bits about it that i like because the bits as a whole come together to just be a really enjoyable game experience with a setting that and there are very few settings that have done this that made me write stuff that was good enough for publication. Absolutely inspired me to do my own thing. Didn't really feel like I was treading on anyone's toes, but had to start generating my own ideas. And before then, I was very much a fan of the published adventure um, for reasons of time and, you know, not being confident enough in my own skills or anything like that. But Earthdawn just absolutely demanded that I start with a published adventure and then things will happen and there was a great big world to explore i've got every source book ever released for earth dawn plus a bunch of other stuff and it takes up about three feet on my shelf it's enormous i've not read it since this millennium because earth dawn kind of stopped for me in 99 went to a new publisher um, but for the 90s it absolutely encapsulated the idea of somebody else's setting but the way that i played it with my group made it our game and that's what the best setting will do somebody else writes it but it's just the stage but the acts that we played out upon it are legend and and i i have friends from 25 years vintage now and we can instantly transport ourselves back to the times we spent in that setting having a glorious time and that's not even just rose tinted spectacles it really it really was some great great games um and i'm very reluctant to go back to it now in case it spoils all of that but as a setting genius for me really inspirational yeah I, th I think entirely correct i have the same sort of thing there's uh, friends that have like uh, dom who hasn't role played for years and probably never will again but we can talk about that time when him and ausler and ragnar and the other characters had to kill one of their pcs because they've been marked by a horror or this that and the other and you know those sort of things like you say so 20 or 30 years ago that absolutely lost in the midst of time almost apart from why aging memories of them mm, yeah and i think there was, there was good bits sort of like tied in the system the tied to the setting as well one particular thing i remember was uh the library of thrall the grand library of thrall which tried to keep all the legends or stories that people had from their adventures and hold them all together so they had some record of the the, the world as it existed now 
And that was uh, enshrined in game rules by if your players actually wrote stuff down and, and your characters went to the library folder and handed this stuff over in a virtual sense, then you got uh, legend points, basically XP, as well as cash money in the game for it as well. So it really encouraged players to get involved in some way too. And that led to some great fun with the, the tree redor, who's like the board, I suppose, in, a, in an Earth Dome world. Uh, Matt, I remember one of my games, used to write loads of stuff. And, and it was just the most glorious nonsense half of it. It was all about him and how he'd save the day, and he was great, and handed this into the Great Library Thrall. And the rest of the players would be up in arms saying, Well, that's not what happened. And it's like, Well, write your own version then. And of course, they couldn't be arsed. So from that point onwards, his character was known throughout Barsave and beyond as this great leader of men. And it was always his party that were going out and doing all this great stuff. And he was forever saving these jackasses. He didn't know how to tie one end of a rope together or whatever else. So it just became part of the game world of it. And then you can kind of introduce it as well as when people have heard of them, when your party become experienced enough that their legend point total gets to a certain level, that people in far off villages have heard of this group. And they go, okay, you're, you're the marvellous Joe, are you? We've heard all about you, and these must be your assistants. And, you know, it drives the other characters furious. But a, a really great way of tying a bit of rules that just ties you to the setting and reinforces the story of how that world works, I think. Yeah, it, it, that is, is a great example. We should have talked about this in the systems podcast, of course, but that's taking the idea of levels and experience points from D&D and many other games and making it a real setting artefact where you would walk up to another character in the setting and they would be able to tell you that they were a third circle warrior. Um, and and you know, if you try that in D&D and say I'm a sixth level fighter, in setting people would look at you askance, of course. But to be of the third circle and adept and taking all of those game terms like XP and making them your legend, that really cemented the whole game. I thought it was a really good blend um, of system and setting. And and for a collector as well um, which all gamers are to an extent it was full of really good little easter eggs too so Bar Save which is the, the land in which it's mostly set, it's bigger than that but, um, but Bar Save is like the, the current area, that kind of lines up with a map of the earth kind of, uh, around the Black Sea, it, it lines up mostly with what we would now call Ukraine uh, but it's not called out that way at all and you know the the rivers and the volcanoes and well the fact that the Black Sea is, is made of lava is enough of a point to the fact it's not real life but it's based squinty on squintily on a map of the earth and that makes you go ooh and that draws you in and then when you realise that there's a place called uh, the Bloodwood which is where blood elves live and Blood Elves are awesome for loads of different reasons and the fact it made it Elves awesome gets me a lot of points for this game because Elves are never awesome but they are awesome in, in Earthdawn but the Bloodwood is also called Wormwood and Wormwood is I believe Ukrainian for Chernobyl and it's in the exact same spot on the map as the Chernobyl radiation zone now thank God for the internet for supplying me with these facts but that's the kind of easter egg that I love and and for the Shadowrun fans out there, of which they are legion, um, and this is the 90s, don't forget, so they were even more legion then, the links between Earthdawn and Shadowrun, published by the same company, were sometimes tenuous, sometimes explicit, but they were there. And they were there just enough to get you interested in two complete game lines. And Shadowrun's another setting where I have spent many a happy hour indeed. And the fact that I could play at both ends of that game company stuff, well, it just made me a fan. I'm just a fan of Earththorn generally. Earththorn Rocks is the best game. 
Yeah, I, I can't really argue with you. I, th- I think certainly from a setting point of view, there was, I mean, like all game lines, there were some duff books. Uh, Thrall sits at the kind of the centre of this this world, but the book for that was pretty poor. Dull. There wasn't a lot I could get out of it. Very dull. But a lot of the adventures, uh, a lot of the setting books, uh, and I think the, there was one was it Prelude to War? I think it was called, which mm. I liked because it was sort of an adventure campaign book, but it was more just gave you the arc. It didn't actually give you like necessarily particular scenarios. It just gave you big events that happen in the game world. And then you sort of fill in all the details depending on how your campaign's going. But it was good in that it really gave the setting a kick. So you've got this uh, sort of new nascent country that was kind of forming that the dwarves are trying to pull together and there's all these different groups. And then out of nowhere, an old empire from hundreds of years ago comes back and invades in a really big and uh, undeniable fashion, literally coming from the skies in some points, and just resets the whole world almost. Like nothing you've done before in your adventures is invalidated at all, but it just shakes everything up at the top levels and gives you so much more to go out against. And there's things you care about by that point, I think, in the setting. You know, there's there's connections you've made, there's locations you like, or a little home base, or villages, or whatever it might be. You've you've made a name for yourselves here, and all of a sudden that's under threat by this external force that's still all part of the same setting and all fits nicely in with everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's that that was done really well compared to some game lines where I think they try and reboot things or reset them or just go turn the guns all down up to eleven. It doesn't really work quite so well because they they've done everything they can and they're just trying to bolt stuff onto it. Whereas I think the Earthdome line did it really well in a in a kind of we're just giving you more of the same. We told you about this ten years ago, and here it is coming larger than life, but you know still as part of the the same story we've been telling. Yeah, I mean, they didn't do very many published straight-up adventures. Not really. Um, some some notable classics in the lineup of the ones they did, mind you. Um, I, I recommend anyone look up Infected, written by Robin D. Laws. Great adventure for so many ways, and, and actually relatively system-neutral. I think you could take a lot from it into many games. Um, but anyway, but what they did do a lot of was they had their fair share of as you say fairly by the numbers location books but anything that was what you would call an event book was just full of things to do more stuff to do and not stuff for npcs to do while you watch or for empires to clash while you're doing skirmishing on the border but your characters would absolutely be at the heart of it because as you said before with the legends point thing by this time you are the equivalent of the rock stars of this world or the uh, no maybe rock stars is wrong but you're certainly a celebrity uh, and well known enough to be a mover and a shaker and the expectation is absolutely on you to get involved in these events and why wouldn't you because that's where the glory and the honor is at and the system was full of little things that was guaranteed to get you into the action stuff like your magic items would only get more powerful if you found out more things about them and their history and every single clue that you would want for that would be contained within an adventure so you would have to go adventuring to get more stuff as opposed to go adventuring and collect more stuff it, it spurred you on a really really good blender of of things to do and and yeah it did have a meta plot that prelude to war that you're talking about i think the main game line ended unceremoniously right after the prelude to war which is awful timing 
Uh, they did subsequently go on and, and redo the war book under another edition, um, not recommended. Uh, but, it, you know, it started off with a open the gates, see what's out there in the world. Within the space of about eight years of publication, it was apocalypse time. Now, that, that's a lot of fun, maybe only because you and I got in on the ground floor, in fairness. I think we were there with the original hardback first edition rule book and 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 we started when there was nothing else but that book to go with so we collected it as we went maybe it might have been a bit intimidating for a newcomer once there was a, a big hefty collection of books available i don't know but if you can get back into earth dawn and go and dig it out i'm sure the the original first edition book is, is on ebay or something for pounds but it'll be a shockingly small amount of money and yeah it will look really dated and yeah the mechanics will look a bit clunky and it's as trad as anything there's barely a narrative bone to his body but it's got Jeff Laubenstein art in it and for no other reason you should absolutely get that so that you can just immerse yourself in the world of 90s fantasy role playing and, and you, you don't have to call yourself a D&D player when you finish so you know you won't be you won't be sullied by that remark so you know just get out there and enjoy it because I enjoyed it for a very long time and I have hugely fond memories of that setting yeah, the second is. And I think it's one of them where, back in the day, so to speak, it, it was full of jabbing writers as well. So you've already mentioned uh, Robin D. Laws, for example, right, Fating. Uh, and Terror in the Skies was written by Sheer and Lancey Hensley, I think. Yes, it was. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, an unknown at the time. So a lot of these st- the stories that are written and the writers there are actually big names now. But back then it was just like whoever writes you know role-playing adventures will sign them up kind of thing but it's got a really good pedigree mm-hmm. so so we'll move on from earth on then otherwise you and i'll spend an hour frothing about it um and move on to deadlands is that something that yes uh, shane hensley has, has done which which i think's always had a really really good setting now to to hop back to systems a little bit i think one of the problems originally was the original deadland setting and i know people argue with me uh, and say that somebody's world isn't better and the, the original's all great and all the rest of it but the thing to bear in mind is that Shane himself posted a public apology for Deadlands' original system and said, sorry, guys, we got it all wrong. So feel free to keep playing it. <laughs> if you think it's better, I'm not going to tell you how to have fun. But the guy who wrote it is rubbish and should play his new one. Well, he's going to because he wants you to buy his new one. But yeah, that should tell you something. If the guy who wrote the games had to redo it all from the ground up. Now, without the barrier of the system getting in the way, the setting, I think, is really excellent for Deadlands. So the basic premise is it's the Weird West. So it's a little bit cowboys. It's kind of New Frontier stuff, but it's got all this kind of shadowy, uh, evil spirits in the background going on as well. So it's really good from a starting point of view. We're just having a group of cowpokes with their smoke wagons that they can pull out the greased holsters and all that kind of stuff and get, get your cowboy on. And then as time develops again, it's a little bit X-Files and you sort of get drawn into the darker, seedy stuff that's happening in the background that you don't know about. And then add on top of that, you've got your steampunk stuff because there's this new super fuel called Ghost Rock because it screams like ghosts whenever you burn it. There may be a reason for that. It might be quite an obvious one. Um, so you've got all these mad inventors and scientists. You've got little bits of magic in there. The Native Americans have got their own thing going on as well with the Manitous and the spirits they speak to. Uh, and it's a really good kind of pumped up steampunk cowboys x-files all that all mixed in together uh, and again like you say it got this kind of overarching backstory going on that kind of built up to and as your players went through the adventures 
the stories, they got more and more involved until eventually the army was the shakers. They're the people that the others in the game world are turning to to solve all their problems. And I like that build-up. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. And I think that's one of the marks of a good setting is having these cool hooks, lots of bits and pieces. You look at the archetypes and think, I want that character and that one and that one and that one. And it's not like I always want to be a fighter. You look at a full spread of these full colour pages and think, I want to be half a dozen of these at least. How am I ever going to narrow it down? So I think that there's your, there's your mark of another good setting, Baz, is having lots of things that you want to be in that setting. Yeah, I think that's 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 as good a thing to do as anyway if you just you're flicking through it and as a gm you're thinking i've got a million ideas for scenarios and as a player you're thinking i'm now going to have to pick between at least half a dozen fantastic concepts then you've got a setting that has that has paid its way that's what you paid your money for to get that those flashes of inspiration uh, you get you get settings for other reasons too but but deadlands absolutely delivers on all those fronts and it's just got a really good central conceit which you think why didn't anyone think of that before because it's actually so obvious it's cowboys and zombies and this is way before zombies were you know the multimedia presence that they are today but it's just a fit that's made in heaven maybe only an american could think of it because i don't think cowboys as an rpg genre had really ever caught on on this side of the pond for perhaps obvious reasons um there'd never been a slew of cowboy uh, RPGs and at that point there hadn't been a massive slew of zombie RPGs or ones with them in it anyway but the blend of the two together and you've got horror wild west I mean I I read some I did some research for this show and I read some reviews and uh, the reviews at the time said it was camp now I didn't really pick that up at the time when I was reading my Deadland stuff but I do get what they mean it is almost camp it's almost B-movie but there's nothing wrong with B-movies when it comes to role-playing games because role-playing games need to be, I think, quite brightly coloured because it dissipates around the table. In the same way as I was talking about frequency, I think you have to like up the speed of what you want to deliver because it's not a novel and it's not a movie. Um, you, you have to kind of turn up the contrast and brightness a little bit too for it to, to really make sense amongst the five or six people around the table. And Deadlands did that. And that central conceit of you've got the reckoners have come through these extra dimensional horrors and they literally want to turn earth into hell and to do that they have to scare the living bejesus out of everybody there and just turn it into a terrifying place and they do that by seeding the wild west or the weird west with vampires werewolves ghosts and yeah it can get a bit scooby-doo at times and what's wrong with a little bit of scooby-doo but the idea of there are things sowing terror and your job is to go and calm that shizzle down that gets you involved in missions straight away and the fact you've got six shooters and you've got hucksters who have to do deals with evil spirits and use poker cards to power their magics and you've got mad inventors with gyrocopters and flamethrowers you know there is nothing to not like about that as as a setting experience that just gets your juices flowing and the only thing that improved Deadlands if that was even possible at the time was it was so good they squeezed another two games out of it (laughs) and I know guys that you're a massive fan of the second in that trilogy so you know come on give me me the the 30 second pitch on the second one in the Deadlands trilogy well there's there's Hell on Earth which is I think in Deadlands basically what you're working towards is your players are hopefully going to win you know stop the Reckoners and all their 
millions of agents and make the world a better place. Uh, and the conceit of Hell on Earth is that the bad guys cheat. Basically, the record is send one of their bad guys still back and start killing all the heroes, the guys that are stopping all the bad things happening. He sends them, he sends them on Terminator style to go back and kill them all. So the bad guys win. The ghost rock bombs drop, and it's kind of after the apocalypse, but instead of nuclear bombs, there's all these spirit bombs that have gone out full of howling evil banshees and spirits of the dead and all that kind of stuff. And there is even like a one part of it that is proper on Terminator and that there's a, a kind of robotic facility that's still operating and Throckmorton's got his goons there. And you have proper Terminators out trying to kill people, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's um, it's kind of what would uh, Deadlands be like if the bad guys won. Mm. I think that's a really good conceit for a game. There's, there's too many games, arguably, where, like you say, it's that bit where it's kind of like, is a war going to break out or on the cusp of... We're in this uneasy pace. I like the game for, if no other reason, the fact that someone went, well, actually, no, there's not an easy piece, and the Evil Empire won't know what you're going to do. Mm. I think that's a really good basis for the setting. Yeah. Uh, I could wax lyrical about all the individual bits and pieces, but you know, they're many and varied, and that, that's the good side of a setting as well. Is there's, there's so many different sort of factions and bits and pieces within it that that's again something that makes a good setting that you don't just have one thing that people have to follow you have that sort of sandbox element of here's loads of stuff happening chuck your players into it and see which bits they like to feed off there's a whole thing with these Mojave Rattlers which are like the um, Frank Herbert's June the, the big worms out of that Abarakis that sort of thing and have all these wormling little humanoid creatures that come and drag people off in the night and that sort of stuff and that's one faction there's Throckmorton's another faction the Native Americans did all right because they stuck to the old ways and they've got spirit magic to preserve them and they've got their own thing going on as well. So there's all these different groups and bits and pieces. There's Road Warriors and Mad Max thrown in. And I think a good thing that he does is, like zombies or cowboys or whatever else, is he picks cool stuff from that he likes in, in common films or whatever else and then chucks them in the game hmm. and makes them fit, most yep. importantly. They don't feel bolted on. They feel like a real honest-to-goodness part of that setting. Yeah, and, and, and don't forget as well that quite apart from the content of which it is ridiculously overburdened with cool stuff is the writing it, these things were just a joy to read now I'm sure the tone wouldn't appeal to absolutely everybody um, and it is certainly written in a in a definite tone and, and you'll see echoes of that in Savage Worlds if you like the way Savage Worlds is written these days you would love the way that Deadlands was written back then and those books were written with a really strong voice usually by insetting characters giving you some information on what's going on I think Hell on Earth was narrated by uh, a character called Debbie Dallas and there was all kinds of interjections by a slightly crazy war satellite that had gone bonkers and it was just full of stuff like that and it was written to you as if you were a character freshly arrived in this world or freshly pulled from a grave because that seems to be a fairly common trope that went away through all three games but really delicious writing because if you like that kind of writing they gave you plenty of books to get stuck into if you didn't like that style of writing I think you probably wouldn't have liked the game um, because it had that kind of tone to it so highly recommended if you want to get a little taster of that pick up almost anything if you still like it after page one there's another thousand pages and if you don't like it after page one, stop. It doesn't get any different. Um, but great stuff. And, and they took it into a, into a third game, which is a bit of a... 
well, it's it's kind of a vestigial game, really, because it, I don't think it got the popularity um, or the bandwidth that, that maybe it deserves. Maybe it's a forgotten classic, or maybe it's forgotten for a reason. But the third game was Deadlands Lost Colony, and just quickly it was set on another planet, and it was the far future version of it. And the other the other far planet on which the game is set, and this either sells you on the game straight away or puts you off, is called Banshee. If you like the idea of adventuring on a remote planet with a lost colony on it called Banshee, then this is the game for you. If you immediately turn up your nose and go, that's some kind of pop culture reference or it's just you know a cool-sounding name, well, it is. Uh, and if you don't like that, you probably won't like the rest of it. But the idea there is that it's a real sister game to Hell on Earth, as if Hell on Earth wasn't bad enough, they took it to another colony, similar to Blue Planet, in that it's at the end of a wormhole, but then it gets cut off. And you know what? I think we can do a spoiler alert because this game was like 2002 or something. So 13 years later, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are roaming abroad on this planet. And there's all kinds of fun to be had with blaster rifles. And third of the games, arguably the weakest of the three. Um, but any game that had enough creative juice in its first game to get another two spin-offs out of it and another couple of additions which are virtually completely different game systems that had to have been a great idea at the start and I think Deadlands was exactly that Yeah and I think we shouldn't give up on Lost Colony just yet Hell on Earth we'd sort of given up on and that turned up quite recently this year or last I can't quite much so I wouldn't be surprised if in another you know five to eight years roll a D4 and add a number we do see Lost Colony turn up but yeah it's uh, Pinnacle aren't great at bringing their sounds out with any great frequency unfortunately but when they get here generally pretty good so yeah deadlands great stuff earth dawn shadow run great stuff all of a similar vintage actually all from that sort of time in the 90s and the very early 2000s um i I mean when i was putting together my little jotted down list of great examples of settings i did struggle a little bit to find anything super recent i've got a couple of examples and maybe they show my age more than anything else um, but nothing really within the last 10 years, I don't think. Did, did you see anything, guys, or is it all self-generated content these days for you? I did struggle a little bit. There's, um, I want to give a brief mention to Red and Pleasant Land, which I haven't really read yet. I've only just sort of gotten the first ah, few pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then bought something else. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's written by uh, Zach S., as he calls himself, who's a very divisive character on the internet. Uh, but he does write some really good stuff. He wrote the Vornheim book which is not really a setting per se but if you're into old school role playing or OSR whatever whatever that stands for these days and you want to do adventuring in a city it's great it's got loads of tables in it like the table of what do you find on the dead body and all that kind of thing Uh, and that's really good for people on the fly rolling rolling some dice and and finding out what's happened right now this second and it works really well it's worth checking out and he's done Red and Pleasant Land and that's kind of Alice in Wonderland uh, meets uh, Transylvania and the Vampire States, and it's in this weird non-Euclidean space as well. So it looks really pretty, and I'm excited about reading it. Unfortunately, it's one of those books that I bought at Dragon Meat, and then I've since bought another 15 books, and it's, the power keeps getting bigger, and my reading through them keeps getting slower. So that's possibly one to have a look at. And I like that, because unlike the 90s stuff, where well, Wizard mentioned there's mountains upon mountains of reading material that's a little I don't think it's quite a five size but that's sort of similar size like pocket book like a little novel that you can read and got loads of cool stuff in it that you can game with 
So I think that's definitely worth a mention for an accessible and fairly short read that's got lots of ideas, which I think in our advanced age is the sort of thing we want. We haven't got perhaps a free time to read hundreds of pages, but if someone just gave you a 200 page novel and said read that, it's got 12 weeks worth of adventure in it, we'd be quite happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the OSR has got quite a bit of that stuff now that I think about it, which is a strange place in some ways for it to come from, given that it's based on, you know, rule systems and ways of play that date back to the 70s. But that's when when people were having, out of uh, no other reason that there was no other option than to generate their settings. And often that was done on the fly or more often off of random tables and hex crawls and that kind of stuff. And, and that's seen a real resurgence of popularity these days and 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 you can do a genuine setting out of nothing but d100 tables uh, and there's plenty out there that will generate you a sandbox and you can call it your own um, even though you may be generating the vast majority of it randomly it's it's absolutely a brilliant springboard i really like that part of the osr and and publishing is relatively trivial pursuit these days um, compared to back in the day it's still not nothing but it's something that we can all do with the right technology that your setting notes that used to sit in a ring binder can now actually be tidied up and made a publishable work stuck out on pdf and other people can enjoy it and and, and that's a brilliant thing to see people's settings out there so i love all that and there is plenty of it around there is a bit less of the massive hardback full flavored setting book with its own discrete rule set they still exist um, we talked about Iron Kingdoms a long time ago in this cast, but that's one of the the more recent, here's the big world and the role-playing game to go with it, and they've done two of those. There's the Iron Kingdoms one, and then there's the Hordes one as well. Dry as dust. I find them dry as dust, um, and I say that as a fan of Iron Kingdoms who got into Iron Kingdoms back when they did D&D um, adventures, and you found out about the Iron Kingdoms by playing um, and arguably for me that was a better way of finding out about the Iron Kingdoms than having to do a research dissertation so you know that those big books still exist but they hold less attraction for me yeah and I think it's definitely a thing there's a, a phrase fantasy heartbreaker which exists and it's bandied about about lots of games uh, there's um there's, there was one for example Omnifray that was this full fat 400 page book you know full of information in its own system but really only of value I think broadly to its author and, and not just that Children of the Sun was this diesel punk adventure system but that I got excited about because of the you know the headlines the strap lines the taglines the elevator pitch and I bought into it but it was just another big fat hardback book that obviously the author and his gaming group had a massive amount of fun with and, and had tons of detail but to read as a, a third party and then try and do something with, like you say, dry as dust, full of irrelevant detail to me that probably means someone, something to someone who was there. If you played through it, a lot of these references or the talk of the great elder trees that rule this plant island or whatever mean loads, but to a new person coming to those sort of things, not going to tell. There's far too many fantasy heartbreakers. So as, as an antidote to that, some stuff I probably mentioned a couple of games is a lot of fantasy games are based on actual real-world myths. So Tolkien, for example, has pulled a lot of his stories from Nordic tales of dwarves and all that, you know, that kind of stuff. It's all based on things that already exist. So if you want to go that route, rather than buying or writing your own fantasy heartbreaker, 
look at something like Mythic Russia by Mark Galliotti or Mythic Iceland by Pedro Zabiani. And they're two great examples of someone, I mean, whether you like the systems or not, one's HeroQuest and one's BRP. So you can take them a lead from a system point of view, to be honest, use your own flavor, whatever you like. But both of them have done a very good job of researching all the books, novels, sagas, poems around a particular part of history or a setting of, or part of the world and condensing it down into a few hundred pages that you can read and run games in. And it's all really exciting stuff. If you look back at uh, real-world myths, Nordic ones, Greek, uh, Arabian, whichever genre you pick, there's tons of gameable ideas there. So I wouldn't go for a new fantasy heartbreaker these days. I just don't think I've got the stomach for it. As we've mentioned, Earthdawn's probably the best. I can't see someone topping that for me. And then when you compile that with someone's actually gone to the trouble of taking all these myths and making one setting look out of them, like Mythic Iceland or Mythic Russia, go for something like that. That's, you know, as much as I appreciate there's people out there with lots of creativity, I think the amount of, or the wealth of detail and interest we've got in those sort of settings already, why bother trying to make your own up? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's often said the best source book that you'll ever get for any setting is Wikipedia because you know uh, our planet and our civilizations that have a str- that have st- stood upon it all these eons they have thought of every gaming idea a million times and and it's all there historical game is not my bag uh, but i absolutely respect the 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 use of it in gaming because it's very hard not to use it i mean i guess one of my other favourite settings I mentioned just briefly because I won't have to mention it more than briefly because I'm sure everyone knows all about it is Warhammer um, and the Warhammer universe is it draws from all kinds of different places but the real earth and its history is one of those places it draws from even if it's just a bit of geography um, but it's absolutely there and it taught me a lot and, and I think sometimes the best settings do that they send you off on, on a on a reading list and and the sort of little journeys these days through the internet where you kind of like chase down these little threads that you found inside that setting and who knows where it will lead you usually to all kinds of different places it's not just about learning about pole arms these days but it might be learning about you know um, wars in poland a thousand years ago which have absolutely gameable scenarios written all the way through them and and if you ever do want to listen to another podcast and not this one where you'd be crazy to do but I suspect Earthdoor might have put a couple of you off. Um, have a check out of Ken and Robin talk about stuff because they plunder that historical value of of the real Earth history all the time, uh, and 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 they can do a setting in ten minutes conversation which will have you rushing to your pad and paper or your tablet straight away. So yeah, I'm with you on that one, guys. Sometimes the best setting is our own world. And to sort of uh, reinforce that, and to we're becoming Robin Laws fanboys a bit here, but I'll mention Feng Shui as well. I had that on my list. I had it on my list. That's that's great for many reasons. It's Hong Kong action movies, basically. And as a conceit of that, the way they've tried to get all these different movies into one place is they have junctures. So there's this kind of like grey netherworld that plugs together lots of different time zones. So if you want to be someone from a John Woo movie and want to play the killer or the assassin in a white suit with doves flying behind him every time he pulls out his pistol, you can do that. If you want to be a ninja or martial artist or eunuch sorcerer, that's in there too. If you want to be in the future and be a robotic battle chimp, you can be one of them as well. It's, they've basically found a way in the game, much like Earth Dawn did of 
Um, you have these underground cares, which are excuses for having dungeons and that sort of thing. They found an in-game sorry, way of having all the kill stuff you want. So you've got lots of different junctures, and you go through this shadowy netherworld to get them all, and you can include loads of different bits of history and some futuristic stuff and whatever else you want. And they're all there in the same game, and it all makes sense in the game world. Mm-hmm. And for, for many reasons, I think that setting's great. I've not really got into the, the latest edition, which has just come out. Kickstarter a couple of months ago. I've got a flick through. Looks very good, glorious, colourful book. But go on, you've got it on your list. What else have you got to say about Feng Shui, Baz? Well, uh, the the thing I liked most about Feng Shui is, do you know what? The setting is every action movie ever made, and the, one of the one of the issues you will have with any setting, which if you're a GM and it's it's lit a fire within you for some reason, and you pitch it to your group, and you've got this big book, and you've got your player group is looking at you thinking well go on then convince me this is just the latest in a in a huge series of books you've read and you're only going to like it for a couple of weeks sometimes settings can be a hard sell action movies are never a hard sell to gamers and your buy-in is have you ever seen die hard uh, at most basic level and and everybody has and if anyone's ever seen hong kong action movies and i'll confess i didn't see many of those not knowingly until feng shui led me there but all of those things even if it's just crouching tiger for goodness sake that's enough that gets you going because the setting is mostly already there in your gamers heads this is just a way of pulling it all together and putting it into its own universe but it's a universe that makes sense and the brilliance of it is the whole idea of the 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 title the feng shui bit about change something in one timeline to alter all of the other ones so i love time travel in any setting and and all of the things that it does to games and you know what i i kind of want to go and look at feng shui 2 again now it's it's on my tablet and i might do that after this podcast because feng shui is one of those games like Earththorn for me like Shadowrun like Warhammer like all the games we've mentioned where it just makes me go oh yeah and grab a notepad and start scribbling it's full of that it is literally inspirational because it can flick so many buttons of stuff you already have in your head you almost don't need to read it to get the setting yeah I think that's absolutely right and I think that's a, uh, another good point for settings is if they can if they've got a pinch point so that people can identify stuff within it so in Feng Shui, you've got the scrappy kid and you've got, you know, any action you can think of, there's probably the archetypes in there. There's a spy who's basically James Bond with the numbers filed off and, and a lot of the archetypes are like that. They're, they're a character from a movie that you will have seen and they've just filed the name off and painted a new one over the top of it. And that's that's often a good technique for, for getting people into games. I know that I personally like to try and find original art for characters if I'm doing something for, for a convention game, for example. But our good friend Pete will happily plunder IMDb or somewhere like that and pull actors or characters' pictures off there and put them on character sheets. Because yeah. if you have uh, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones on the front of your character sheet, you immediately know how you're supposed to play that character. You can go to the words and the numbers because you can identify and get in the headspace straight away. Mm. And that's something I think uh, the, the Feng Shui does particularly well. Is it's got, like I said, those easily identifiable characters that you can just straight jump straight in on. I think arguably a little bit of a weakness with it is that it's it feels short term because you have that immediate kind of buy-in, but do you then think you've got uh, enough to go on for six months 
or would you get bored quite quickly? Well, yeah, that's that's a really good point, and probably goes to the heart of our topic today about settings. Because you know, is it a setting if you can only play in it two or three times and you then jettison it? Um, uh, maybe it isn't a setting unless you can do what you know what you would call in the old days a campaign. You know, a, a dozen sessions, and then maybe want to do it again, but in a different part of that setting with a different flavour. I I never felt like I finished my feng shui gaming i've not played it millions of times maybe a dozen times and that's more than i have a lot of games don't get me wrong but they tended to be one shots and that kind of suits the genre as well because you know they're based on an action film and a sequence of combats and there is a built-in thing with the system with your melodramatic hook that you kind of need to finish your character story whether that's rescue your sister but you know they tried that in in taken the movie but they've managed to squeeze another couple out of that so if they can do it in action movies and get a franchise out of it maybe you can get a franchise out of feng shui i'd like to think you could because if you've got four distinct timelines rocking along plus the netherworld that's actually five settings so how can it be that five settings can't give you enough juice for an extended game I mean, I, I I would never promise anything, but I'm seriously tempted to look back at Feng Shuiers and pitching it to my regular group to see if we can get a decent, long-running game out of it, even if we have a rotating cast of characters. Maybe that's the way to do it. That could be it. I think you've got you've got a good basis there. I'll, I'll mention one that I don't think works quite as well, and that's The Strange by Monty Cup Games. Oh, yeah, I know you've got issues with that, haven't you? Yeah, you use the cipher system, which is fine. It's quite simplistic. Probably not enough crunch for me, but that's nothing to do with the setting. But the, the way the game is presented is it's sort of based on Earth, but sort of not. You've got these doorways to different, I'll call them different dimensions. I can't remember the exact word. One of the problems with that book. Recursions. 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 Yeah, stupid. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to try and stick to the nomenclature, but essentially the concept is that you're kind of like uh, dimensional cops. So the alternate recursion of the give you in the book, one's a fantasy world and one's a kind of biotech futuristic world. And then there's as many more as you can imagine. It's a bit like sliders. There's all kinds of different worlds with all kinds of different stuff going on. But the thing the setting doesn't do is tie any of that together or give you a reason to go to a different recursion. And a lot of the, well, I said a lot. That's a lie. I'll rewind. Sorry, I'm free. But the one or two adventures I've read send you to different places but without any real good reason to go there. And the adventures I've read for, for example, I think it's called Erin, which is the fantasy world, or stop some bandits attacking a village, or steal a dragon's treasure type stuff. And that's all very well and good, but I can do that in D&D. What I want from a game like The Strange is a reason to go between these different cool and exciting worlds that makes sense for my character. If I'm an accountant in Philadelphia, why do I want to go and fight some bandits outside a village in Cherry Tree in Erin. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. So it's all very well having cool stuff in your settings, but you need a way of turning together or for your players to have a reason to go to the different places in it. Otherwise, why those places there? Why bother? Yeah, the the game you are looking for was released a long time ago and it's called Torg. And it, (laughs) it did all of that, but with more aplomb, wit and finesse and had a reason for parties to stay together too. Um, from the heyday of, of settings 
uh, you know torg was i don't even know what torg stands for does it stand for anything i don't know nobody asked the questions back then you just got on with it um but it was very pulp and that had at least six brilliant settings smooshed in with each other And, and and the brilliance of that was that your party could have a character from each of those settings in it and it did the whole you know your characteristics change when you go from one dimension to the other and it was mental um but it, it had innovative systems as well and and i and you know when you talk about the strange um and i see it in numenera as well which is you know the progenitor of the strange i just don't see anything new um i think it has been done before and i i don't mind the cipher system same as you i think that's that's a, a neat little core mechanic that works on a few different levels but it comes shackled again to the 300 page hardback which you don't you don't surely really get the mileage out of that you want um and i mean numenera and the strange should be books that you can let fall open at any page randomly stab your finger down and walk away from a paragraph thinking that's brilliant which you can do with every other setting we've discussed or in an osr random table you can roll on it and come away with at least something or move up or down one and see something else you can't do that with numenera and the strange i actually find them quite dry reads now that's my preferences i get it i'm sure they're hugely popular games they certainly made enough money on kickstarter to suggest that my opinion and your opinion is in the minority um but when did that ever stop us giving our opinions on things so no not for me i find them a bit intimidating a bit dry and a bit studious when they should be fantastical and inspirational and just full of cool where you have to keep slamming the book shut and looking at the ceiling while you dream for a couple of minutes then go back to it and they're not like that and that's a shame I think you're right uh, and I think the same sort of thing comes from some of the AEG books uh, I like Legend of the Five Rings I think it's great I think one of the barriers is a lot of people don't really get the kind of oriental setting or the, the feudal Japan type stuff uh, I, I, I get that I know that some people don't buy into it the same as some people don't like cowboys or pirates or superheroes or whatever but the old first edition it's sort of in that mythic Iceland mythic Russia kind of way taking the cool bits from that the myths and stuck them in a game and then you've got Samurai and Ninjas as well and then adding some more stuff on top just for extra chisel and giggles uh, and I think that that's a really good setting. The trouble is, as, as time's gone on, we're now to, I think, the fourth di- edition, and there's tons of books, and it's really tightly packed text on a page. And not a lot of it's gamble, you know. There's a lot of stuff about wedding ceremonies, and when you're 13, you become a man, and what kind of headband you should wear, and all this. And it's just that what we want from our settings, I think, is stuff you can game with, stuff you can do at your table. Isn't that, isn't that what it boils down to? Yeah, got to be, hasn't it? got to be because i've always said about any book that you can buy for gaming it's it's only got two jobs and it can do either one of them or it can do them both but it's got to do something it either removes the burden mechanically so it helps you out so that you don't have to generate your stat blocks generate everything else and or it gives you inspiration and ideas you didn't already have if it can't deliver on at least one of those fronts it wasn't worth your money and I'm absolutely fine with a book that can deliver on just one of those fronts but if you're going to get a setting book it's got to deliver ideas and inspiration because you would be better off with a blank sheet of paper and hopefully some buddies 
and if you're in a gaming group you will have those check them out you know get them over to do a world generation session pick up a game like fate or microscope or one of the world games and you will generate something that has got more legs and more personal involvement than that book that didn't give you a huge amount of inspiration but you thought all the cool kids are trying it these days let's give it a go so i i would suggest despite all the amazing settings that we talked through they are all of a certain vintage you mentioned five rings i could bring in seventh c as another great example of a setting that absolutely had legs at the time but i'm starting to get the idea from looking through our list today that that maybe those things are best off where they are now and and you can get everything you need from those settings out of wikipedia even today take that take your rule set of choice and off you go and and make the next setting you own the one that you generated i think that yeah what we're driving at is that a good setting i think for us these days is the one that gives you the ideas you don't have to take it whole cloth you just need a, a bag of ideas from it so I, I think I'll finish with, with one last item I've got on the list then, um, and that's Over the Edge. Oh, it's on my list, again. <laughs> I didn't talk about it because all of these games have something in common. They're all from the 90s or early 2000s. Robin Laws has been involved at a level with every single one of them. Uh, but yeah, Over the Edge, uh, I'll steal your thunder a little bit. It's the original indie game and it was somebody else's generated at the table session but they published it right yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely brilliant i think and the good thing about it is it's not it's not this this hundreds and hundreds of pages of epic stuff all it actually is is tons and tons of good ideas all just mashed together on the uh, imaginary island of alamaha in the mediterranean and it's just got loads of great paragraph sized bits and pieces all stuffed in together and I think that's basically uh, almost a perfect setting in the that that book, that one small book. Is it like 120 pages, or it oh, feels like one, if that, one yeah, of those if smaller times? Yeah, maybe 96. But it's absolutely packed with gettable stuff and cool ideas, and some you can drop by the wayside, and others you pick up and run with, and others you change to suit your needs. But honestly, you can land in the airport and go for a coffee after getting in uh, the death cab, which drives you there without a driver, and you know you've got at least half a dozen if not 10 ideas straight away that your players can run off with the system itself we could talk about at a different point but I think in terms of just having a big book of good ideas over the edges absolutely dripping with them and the stuff you can drop in and this is the good bit I think is you can drop in bits about other parts of the island or conspiracies or characters or things that are going on and they won't necessarily mean anything at the time but they won't get in the way either. And then later on, when you mention them again, the players will be like, oh, but wait a minute, that other guy was wearing his knees as a tie, or why did that other street artist have an eyebrow shaved off? And the little details that seem like they're just colour, but are all part of the ongoing setting and do actually have a motivation in the background, and you can bring them back in and reincorporate, and you can foreshadow really easily. I think it's just a, mm. a big melting point of fun ideas. Yeah, it's, it, it ties right back into one of your first picks for this cast, which was Delta Green. Delta Green and Over the Edge have a similar, kind of similar pedigree if you squint at them, in that they're both about the stuff that's hidden from normal view. But in Over the Edge, it's it's not really a mystery. It's all about the conspiracies, and conspiracies only exist if you know about them. So it's it, Over the Edge is not shy about putting everything in front of the players um, 
at all. It, it, in fact, it gives you too much stuff. It's almost overwhelming in the amount of hooks and interest and inspirations you're going to be given. A, as a party of players, you, you have a smorgasbord in front of you of, of threads to follow up. And it's all incredibly vibrant. Um, so it's the opposite of Delta Green in that way, but it comes from a similar kind of era, that X-Files era where, you know, government conspiracies were all the rage and you can stick in every conspiracy you can think of and then some. If you've got the guts, go to TV Tropes and look up Over the Edge because it will list every single conspiracy lined within and, and everyone's a click and uh, you say goodbye to your life. But, yeah, for for sheer unbridled genius and lunacy, it's a cracking game. Uh, cracking game for loads of different reasons um, written by Jonathan Tweet added to by jo- Robin Laws who the, the pair of them keep generating great settings um, still doing so today uh, yeah Over the Edge is a classic uh, it's a 90s game as well mate but we keep going back to it what have we been doing for 20 years but playing those great games I'll have to, now we've mentioned again I've got to mention a bit it is System but I think it's from Whether the Cookie Likes uh, and it's um it's the cut-ups project there's these chaos uh, advocates and they're just feeding newspapers and magazines and stuff into this big machine and it spits out words at them and they take that as the next mission next mission sorry and that's part of the mechanics of the game which is it's quite simple we roll a couple of d6 I think mm-hmm. and instead of doing that what you do is you chop up a lot of papers and museum, uh, museums magazines even no right first time it's over yeah yeah you can do, you can do whatever you want yeah uh, and stick words in a hat and then you ask players what their action is going to be and they have to pull a bunch of words out of that hat and make a coherent sentence out of it and if if the words they use fit in the sentence nicely they get high score, high score. and if they don't fit in at all they get a low score uh, and that's just a really interesting way again of making that system and setting stuff up bonkers bonkers and one, and one of those games again where you go to the recommended reading page at the end and it sends you off to your public library or to your kindle and you come back a different person <laughs> so you know not for the faint-hearted but um I, while we're on over the edge just briefly i will say that one of the things that really helped me get a handle on that setting and this is true of a few different games again all from that kind of era was many role-playing games back then branched out into card games and over the edge generated one called on the edge which i loved i I was in a a a small pool of players as you were in it too but there was a few of us that really loved on the edge it was it was big enough to to spawn a few expansion packs the rest of it that was and remains in my opinion a great way to digest a setting netrunners doing it now you get a few packs of cards they've got a couple of square inches of art maybe a sentence of text that's flavour the rest of it's pure system but play a couple of games of that invest a couple of hours of your life in a really good card game and do you know what you suck up an awful lot of setting that way and it will often send you scurrying back to RPG land which is what I want to do with Netrunner all the time and On the Edge was a really really inspirational card game and, and utterly mad as far as the system goes as well but there are some cards from that set that 20 years later I will never forget and most of them involve a chihuahua so for those of you who know the stuff that I'm talking about you'll remember it as well Uh, and there was some some delightfully bonkers stuff that was just communicated for a very visual medium and uh, 
if if a game can generate a collectible card game like they all did in the 90s that was a great way of sucking up that setting and i bet you can get those dirt cheap these days as well shadow fist for feng shui doom town for deadlands they they were all there at the time weren't they the earth dawn collectible card game sadly has never made it into print but i can sense a project coming on well, well i have to do it ourselves but as you can draw i can do photoshop we're, we're there <laughs> nobody wants to see my take on the blood elves so i think we yeah we've, we've burned tons of time so we're, gonna have we're to out of time quite soon. yeah yeah the, the only other one I'll, I'll just give a quick honorary mention to is unknown armies mm-hmm. which is another great setting it's got tons of stuff in it um I'll not bang on because we're way over time, but definitely give it a look through. It's kind of a, a modern uh, urban fantasy, I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might say it's Neil Gaiman. I don't particularly like him, but I do like Unknown Army. He's got tons of stuff in it, and it's another book packed full of ideas. So that, just stick that on your reading list if you're if you're short of stuff to look through. Yeah, totally agreed, and I'm glad we bought it reasonably bang up to date because you know so much of the setting stuff we've talked about has been, of course, fantasy but we've uh, we've touched on a few other things as well not too much in the sci-fi realms um maybe sci-fi is a podcast for another time because I, I think it has its own special reasons for want to be for want to be scheduled differently so in a podcast that has now generated its own four page timeline and broken all the rules of settings i think perhaps it's time to wrap it up so um that's the answer to what the smart party would do it would uh, go back to the 90s to the golden golden years of settings and um if you want to get in touch with us please do we want to hear your opinions on settings we've not touched upon settings we've forgotten about some new stuff perhaps i don't know shadows of esteren people talk about that i've not read page one of it i'm sure it's brilliant tell us all about it and you can get back in touch with us through the normal channels yep thank you very much everybody and we'll see you next time on what would the smart party do cheers and goodbye <laughs>